Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. On today's episode, a listener writes in and they have a great question for us today to consider. The question is this, what does Jesus teach about criticism and how do I handle criticism? We see criticism can be either helpful or it can be unhelpful. Criticism is unhelpful when it aims to attack the person and it belittles them. But criticism is valuable when it, when it seeks to help the person grow to be like Jesus Christ. So we're going to see from Luke 23, 6-12, we're going to see Jesus interact with his critics on his way to the cross by being quiet in his response to his criticism instead of responding to them. And at the end of our show today, we'll discover how to give godly criticism motivated by loving God and loving people, as well as why unhelpful criticism is so helpful. So, so let's turn to Luke 23, 6 through 12. And it says this, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he had learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent them over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Well, the account in Luke 23, 6-16 is found only in the Gospel of Luke. Luke recounts this incident to reveal both Pilate and Herod found Jesus innocent. Herod was glad in Luke 23, 8, not because he wanted to kill Jesus, but because he longed to see Jesus do some sign. And Jesus makes no answer in this passage. His silence here fulfills Isaiah 53, 7, placing the responsibility of his death squarely on his accusers. Jesus doesn't respond to injustice in our passage today. You see, whenever somebody asks him to confess his his real and true identity as the Son of God and the Son of Man, he testifies that he is the Son of God or the King of the Jews or whatever proper title people wanted to give him. Why, Why did Jesus refuse to say anything to defend himself? Well, it may have been because there was nothing left to say. Herod had already had his chance to hear the gospel, and he had hardened his heart. And by the time he he closed his conscience and he refused to repent, there's nothing left for Jesus or for anyone else to say to him. And this is a dire warning to anyone who rejects the the free gift of God's grace. Eventually, the day is going to come when when there's going to be no more gospel left for you. And Jesus knew there was no need to defend himself because his father would vindicate him at the right time by raising him from the dead. In fact, let's consider this fact, that his refusal to argue his own case was in fact another argument for his perfect innocence. Psalm 37, 5-7 says this, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the new day. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. You see, there are all, these are all good reasons 
for Jesus not to speak in his own defense. His example reminds us not to be so quick to defend ourselves when we're attacked unjustly. It's that Jesus, what Jesus' example here reminds us about is to wait patiently for him, for the Lord to defend us. Well, remember the example Jesus set for us and, and what Peter taught in 1 Peter 2, 22-23, which says this, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, this is one further reason why Jesus refused to speak in his own defense. And this is a reason that goes beyond anything we could ever do. Suffering in silence was part of the work that Jesus was called to do for our salvation. In fact, it was the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. Isaiah 53, 7 says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. See, Jesus, he fulfilled the prophecy in Isaiah 53, 7, by refusing to protest his own innocence or to strike back at his accusers. The image Isaiah uses to convey the spotless innocence of the afflicted Savior was the pure image of a sacrificial lamb. In his quiet submission to the torments of his oppressors, Jesus fulfilled this prophecy, and he proves that he was the Savior whom God had promised to send. And Jesus suffered in, in silent majesty without any protest so that he could do the perfect work of our salvation. Never lose hope that Jesus did this so that we would have something to say when we ourselves are put on trial. One day we will all appear before God for judgment. If we have nothing to say, then it will not be because of our perfect innocence, but because there's nothing we can really say in defense of our sinful selves. The good news is that Jesus will have something to say. Though silent in his own defense, he will not be silent in defense of anyone who trusts in him and in his finished and sufficient work. See, Jesus has promised that, that one day he is going to openly acknowledge everyone who openly acknowledges him in Luke 12, 8. Through faith in Christ, when you at last appear before God justly accused of all of your sin. Jesus will plead the merits of his own royal and his own innocent righteousness. Having suffered for your sins all the way to the cross, he will speak up and he will tell his father to give you not the verdict that you deserve, but the verdict he deserves. So how do we best handle criticism? The best way to handle criticism is to get on your hands and your knees and to seek the face of God in his word and in prayer. Any criticism that we offer as Christians is to be rooted and grounded in love. Ephesians 4.15, after all, tells us to speak the truth in love. And this should be our primary guide in criticism, speaking the truth in love. Godly criticism is true. It's loving. It ought to come from a, from a humble and a caring heart that wishes the best for the other person. Godly criticism should never be bitter, condescending, insulting, or even cold-hearted. 2 Timothy 2, 24-25 says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 says this, Love is patient, love is kind. Love is not envy, it does not boast, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. 
Criticism, if it's loving, is going to express these attributes. Criticism must be grounded in the truth of the word of God. Well, sometimes criticism is based on hearsay, but, but that's gossip, right? Uninformed criticism in most situations will end up embarrassing the critic when the truth is revealed, Proverbs 18.13 says. The self-righteous Pharisees criticized Jesus based on their own faulty stances when the truth wasn't on their side. You see, godly criticism is concerned to be critical of only what the Bible is critical of. 2 Timothy 3.16 teaches that the word of God is profitable for reproof and for correction. In other words, the inspired word of God leads Christians to analyze everyday situations critically. While discussing how to handle godly criticism is critical, we as Christians also need to beware of a critical spirit. You see, there is a significant difference between helping someone grow in grace and being overly critical. A critical spirit is never pleased and it never expects and, and finds disappointment wherever it looks. Rather than looking for evidence of the grace of God and, and loving the people of God, a critical spirit judges falsely, it's easily provoked, and it accounts for every wrong. A critical spirit damages the critiqued and the critic. Biblical criticism is helpful, it's loving, it's based on the truth of the word of God. Correction is to be gentle since it comes from love. Galatians 5, 22-23 teaches that the Holy Spirit wants to produce in the people of God love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if our criticism cannot be expressed in keeping with the fruit of the Spirit, it's better left unsaid. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.